G'day mate, 40 here, so I got back from my Passover shopping about uh, an hour ago and I thought for the first time in memory, I wonder what Dennis Prager has to say about X. So the X in this case was the indictment, I wondered, uh, what, what does Prager have to say about the indictment? And uh, so I tuned in, I was wondering, uh, what, would, what would Mr. Prager have to say and... It kind of embodied for me why I stopped listening to Dennis Prager. I think it was back in 2015 that I stopped subscribing to Pragertopia. So let me play some of his Friday show. That's March 31. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Dennis Prager Show on a dark day in American history. I never thought that I would live to see the United States. Okay, a, a dark day in American history. So... Let's think about other dark days in American history. Uh, 9-11, dark day in American history. Uh, almost 3,000 Americans were murdered. Uh, we invaded Afghanistan in the fall of 2001. Seems like a wasted effort. That strikes me as possibly a dark day in American history. We invaded Iraq in March of 2003. And uh, tens of thousands of Americans were injured, and what approximately 10,000 Americans died, and close to a million Iraqis died as a result of that invasion. So that strikes me as a dark day. Uh, December 11th, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, strikes me as a, a dark day in American history. So I am skeptical of the legitimacy of this indictment against Donald Trump, right? We haven't had the opportunity to read the indictment yet, so maybe they have all sorts of information that we don't know about, but right now, listening to people like uh, Alan Dershowitz, it seems like a very slender read on which to prosecute Donald Trump. Now, there's a lot of discussion, you know, this is terrible, we're a banana republic because we've indicted a former president. I don't see that, all right? If the evidence is there, that this is a crime, then he should be treated like any other citizen. So now, generally speaking, this Manhattan DA, he doesn't prosecute felonies except as misdemeanors when people are doing violence. Here he seems to be prosecuting a misdemeanor as, as a felony. So I am skeptical of the power of this indictment. I am skeptical that it will stand up. But we haven't read the indictment, so... We have to reserve judgment. I, I just don't see calling this a a dark day in American history. Where are the January 6th charges? For Donald Trump, you mean? Uh, the reason that we don't have charges against Donald Trump at January 6th is that there's really no basis. All right, all politicians say we have to fight for our country, right? That doesn't mean to commit crimes. So saying that we have to fight for our country... I, I don't think that's a strong enough basis for indicting Donald Trump. Now, he did whip up hysteria by contesting the results of the 2020 election, and he didn't have a, a factual empirical basis to do so. And by saying that the election was rigged, he then removed any moral safeguards from people who approached the issue that same way. If you believe the election was rigged, then, then there's nothing that you can't do or moral retribution or moral standards like all moral constraints are removed once you say that the election was rigged 
So the chat says, send send Trump to the slammer. I'll enjoy seeing his mugshot. Where are the January 6th charges? We need charges. He incited a mob to storm the center of the U.S. government. He should be in solitary, not his supporters. So I don't think you can make that case legally. I can understand the case morally. Still, are the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, are they not responsible for their behavior? So... I don't think that uh, they were just automatons who were simply programmed by Donald Trump. They were responsible for their behavior. And so if a politician says, oh, we have to fight to take back this country, and you, then you go out and commit crimes, I put the onus for those crimes on you, not the politician who tells you we have to fight. And not even on the politician who says the election was rigged. So Trump bears some responsibility for January 6th. I'd give him... I don't know, anywhere between 10 to 30 to 40 percent responsibility for the January 6th riots, but you can't uh, prosecute uh, on the basis of moral responsibility. You can only prosecute on the basis of, you know, clearly breaking the law. I don't think that uh, you can make a strong legal case in that direction, but this is why I don't listen much to Dennis Prager anymore. Evolve this rapidly and this dramatically and this clearly. As many of you know, my field of study at, uh, in graduate school was communism. I learned Russian in order to understand what was going on in the Soviet Union. Okay, so he's saying we're going down the path of the Soviet Union, which just strikes me as a tad hyperbolic. I really don't think we're going down the path of the Soviet Union. The election was rigged, up the steel march in the direction of the capital to stop the certification. Yeah, but still, that's, I, I don't think that's the crime. He didn't say storm the capital and overrun the house and string up Mike Pence. Okay, so saying the election was rigged is wrong. It's factually wrong, morally wrong. Uh, stop the steal, factually and morally wrong, but neither of those are illegal. March to the Capitol to stop the certification. All right, I still don't think you can make a legal case. You can make a moral case that that was wrong. What year did Luke Ford become wiser than Dennis Prager? Uh, if you think I am wiser than Dennis Prager, then you would trace it to the year 1998 when I read the bell curve. So since I read the bell curve, I believe it was in something like January or February of 98, maybe it was the fall of 1997, I immediately recognized it was just obviously talking basic common sense, that this is obviously true. And anyone who would deny these obvious truths is not terribly interested in truth. They're more interested in other things, such as their career. So if you think that I am wiser than Dennis Prager, then you'd have to uh, date it to when I started, when I read the bell curve and I posted online, yeah, this is obviously true. Anyone who denies these, these basic facts about human nature is just denying the truth for for whatever reason, usually it's for reasons of uh, their career or for their comfort. So 1998 was the year that uh, Luke Croft was, was born. So in 1998, I was doing reporting on the porn industry primarily at the time. There was this string of HIV infections, and I was stunned how the mainstream media didn't have much interest in putting together the story of month after month there was HIV infection and I managed to trace it back to one actor Mark Wallace who'd had unprotected anal sex with you know all these girls about a dozen or so who tested HIV positive and he'd had unprotected anal sex with them a few weeks before they tested positive so 
I was thinking in 1998, my God, there are just so many obvious stories out there just for the easy picking, like you know this string of HIV infections, the, the basics of, of the bell curve, how important that is for economic analysis, social cultural analysis, uh, racial analysis, crime analysis. These just basic facts of life. It just struck me as basic common sense, it completely accorded with not just my life experience, but everything I've read. So anyone who would deny the bell curve like Dennis Prager does just struck me as someone who is not uh, primarily interested in truth. Luke, in a previous stream, you said TND was an antisocial manifestation of the distant right, but what do you think is the ideal number of Bantus? What is TND? What does that, that stand for? So tell me that and I'll answer you. To read Pravda every day, I did not study Russian in order to converse or to read Dostoevsky. I specifically wanted to read Pravda. And I studied Russian history, the Russian Revolution, Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, I studied that very avidly. I would say at this moment, you do not have to have knowledge of the Russian Revolution and the takeover of the Soviet Union, originally Russia, by communists. In order to understand communism, you have to understand what is going on at this time in the United States of America and Canada for, for good measure, and in, uh, to a certain degree in other Western countries. You are living the textbook that I studied, or the textbooks that I studied. You have no idea how all of this has come as a surprise to me. If you'd have told me in graduate school. Okay, there's just no commonality between the rise of the communists to power in the Soviet Union and what's going on in the United States in 2023. Uh, total N word death. Okay. So, yeah, if you would say, if you would, you know, post the N word in this time and place, it would strike me, generally speaking, as something antisocial, meaning you go out of your way to be. Uh, provocative and, and nasty. In your biography, didn't Prager hire a lawyer to go after you? Yeah, I was quoting two lengthy excerpts from some of his essays. And yeah, I still I still appreciate uh, some of what Dennis Prager has to say, but he is, he's not a doctor. So what what is the ideal number of uh, Bantus? Well, I think generally speaking, the more you have in common with your fellow citizens, the better. Uh, race is one form of common identity, but uh, also practices, rituals, outlooks on, on life, uh, family formation. So race, religion, uh, common commitments, all right, rituals, ways of speaking, language, all right, the more you have in common, the better. Am I okay with total Amalekite death? Okay, great question. So the Torah says that you must wipe out Amalekite, uh, Amalek. And so this has been used flexibly throughout Jewish history to append to your enemies, such as the Nazis or at times the Palestinians. So some Jews have used this to just append to their enemies. So I think in certain times and places when you're in a life and death struggle with an enemy, then appending you know, the enemy must die makes sense and is adaptive and useful. Uh, most times it's not adaptive. So I was born May 28, 1966. So I think I'm a little older than baby boomer. So I've never really paid much attention to the generations. That doesn't strike me as a particularly powerful technique for understanding 
the world. It doesn't like unlock life the, the way that, say, just understanding basic facts about IQ really helps you to better understand life. So I, I think that makes me Gen F, Gen, Gen X. Nope, I don't believe I am a boomer. I think uh, the baby boom wasn't 1965 the last year for uh, baby boomers. That I am studying the American future, not just the Russian past or the Hungarian or Polish or East German. Or so, yeah, studying the American future is when you study the Soviet past. I, I mean, everything in human history you can find between two events, you can find some things in common, but... I don't think that uh, understanding Russia in 1915, 1916, 1917, 1918, and then the development of the Soviet Union really gives you that many insights into America today. So I've, I've read Stephen Cockin's Mammoth 2, two-volume series uh, biography on, on Joseph Stalin. I, yeah, I don't see a lot of parallels with modern America. Czech or Bulgarian or Romanian. Uh, I uh, would have thought you're out of your mind, and I would have been wrong. The negative... No, you would have been right, but it just feels like you're responding to the incentives of the medium that you're in. So I've been listening to Dennis Prager since 1988, and then I became such a Dennis Prager acolyte that I also ordered tapes of his radio shows going back to his debut, I think, in 1983. So I've largely listened to pretty much everything Dennis Prager said on the radio between about 1983 and 2015. Now, starting about 1989, I realized that uh, I had an excessive interest in Dennis Prager, but I thought, that's okay, I'm going to use it to write about him one day. So there are only so many topics that you can specialize in a lifetime. And so approximately 1989, I realized, hey, I'm going to specialize in Dennis Prager. I'm going to write about him. He's an interesting man. I can place him in a particular context. Yeah, I was an atheist that argued with Dennis Prager in 1988 when I arrived at UCLA. And then listening to Dennis Prager and reading his book on Judaism brought me to a, back to a theistic perspective on life. So from about 1989 onward, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm working on a project. I'm not just you know, listening to him for my personal benefit. I'm, I'm going to specialize in Dennis Prager. And so I've got approximately a 200-page biography of Dennis Prager on my website, lukeforward.net, and I put a link to it in the, the video description because uh, he he's an interesting bloke and it helps you know reveal the, the world that we live in. And so I noticed, like almost all successful political talk radio hosts, Dennis Prager excels at infuriating people. And I noticed that even though I largely agreed with Dennis Prager from about 1989 onwards, I would notice once he became nationally syndicated and was, was on the radio every day, I noticed that I would usually be less happy at the end of listening to him than prior. So Dennis Prager wrote a book on happiness. He gives lectures on happiness. He has a weekly happiness hour on his radio show. But he depends upon making his audience unhappy to keep his job. His job gives him money, prestige, you know, influence, Right? There are a lot of reasons why you'd want to be a nationally syndicated radio host. He's age 74, but I don't notice from, from the little I've listened to him of late, but I don't notice any decline in his, his powers from 64 or even 54. But 
he's working in a medium that depends upon keeping people unhappy to keep your job right a show that gives people a nuanced understanding of current events from both sides of the aisle apparently there's no business model for this in talk radio or tv punditry the last big one i think was michael jackson on kbc radio in los angeles in the 1980s into the early 1990s so my, my overview reaction to politics is that uh, both right-wing tendencies and left-wing tendencies are evolved evolutionary tendencies that people have adopted over thousands of years and that's in some circumstances the left-wing tendencies such as towards uh, more egalitarianism towards more openness to strangers to a decreased re reaction to possible threats to more innovation in how we organize communities and families in some circumstances that's going to be adaptive and in other circumstances the right-wing approach of more suspicion of strangers you know a higher reaction to possible threats uh higher level of disgust all right at you know things that are gross all right so people on the right they tend to have a much higher disgust reaction than people on the left so in some circumstances that's going to be a more adaptive approach and i i just assume that i am genetically programmed to be right wing okay so that's my my basic big picture overview on um politics if i try to get you know to the ten thousand foot level that, that both sides are going to be adaptive in different circumstances so for example an american election that is fought primarily on an issue of say national security that republicans will have an edge a uh, presidential election that is fought primarily on the basis of social welfare spending then democrats are going to have an edge so you can think of people on the right largely embracing a father type morality and people on the left largely embracing a motherhood nurturing type morality so i jotted down august 26 2014 dennis prager saying in his second hour of his radio show if you didn't hear the first hour i really got angry this story out of Vermont is a good reason for you to hear all three hours, and the best way is through Pragatopia.com. The taking down of the bacon ad in Vermont, and then the dishonesty in addressing it. We are in trouble. Not because of the woman who made the request, but because they honored the request. So this is Vermont Restaurant Fried by Bacon Ad Backlash. So Winooski Restaurant's decision to take down a bacon advertisement become the center of an online backlash. And apparently a woman who was a vegan and a member of a Muslim household called the sign offensive. Given the large number of Muslim families in this community, as well as many others who do not eat pork for a variety of reasons, it seems unnecessary for this insensitive business sign to be at the city's main crosswalk. So how much do you need to, you know, bend to the will of, of people around you? All right, so if you live in a largely Muslim community, it would make sense that there would be a backlash against having some big sign proclaiming bacon. So that doesn't mean legally you should be forced to take down the sign, but there will there will be consequences if you if you put up a sign that offends a large segment of the people around you, or particularly if they are highly in engaged. Also, if you have a highly vegan community around you, all right, there are going to be negative consequences. So I, I don't see this as necessary to be getting really angry over right if if an individual or a business has the strength to defy uh, a community or defy you know an engaged number of the members of the community on an issue
see my uh, bacon ad, then you know, good for them. But I, I d just don't see this as a reason to get terribly, terribly angry. So here is the playbook for talk radio. This comes from 2008. Dan Shelley, former news director and assistant program director at Milwaukee's WTM Radio, wrote for Milwaukee Magazine. So talk show hosts are popular and powerful because they appeal to a segment of the population that feels disenfranchised, even victimized by the media. These people believe the media predominantly staffed by and consistently reflect the views of social liberals. That is true. This view is now is by now so long and deeply held and deeply rooted is evolved into part of virtually every conservative's DNA. True, and for, for good reason. To succeed, a talk show host must perpetuate the notion that his or her listeners are victims. So it's so funny, the right wing blasts the victimhood mentality, but they tend to blast it on nationally syndicated you know, talk shows and TV shows that are popular because they are perpetuating and deepening the notion that you are the victim. And when you tell people that you are the victim, you are increasing their unhappiness levels and making them less effective at life, right? You're disabling people. So the right wing tries to perpetuate the notion that uh, their, their listeners, their people are victims, perhaps even as much as the left wing. And so to succeed, here's the key, to succeed, a talk show host must perpetuate the notion that his listeners are victims and the host is the vehicle by which they can become empowered. Right? That is the formula for talk radio and for partisan cable TV punditry as well. The host frames virtually every issue in us versus them terms. Right? This is how the mic sounds bad. So let me fix that. Hang on. The destructive consequences of the indicting of a former president over trivia, meaning that the purpose is not justice, the purpose is indictment, the purpose is conviction, the purpose is humiliation, the purpose is, is to express the contempt that the left has for everyone who voted for Donald Trump, and of course for Donald Trump. That is the intent. There is no, there, the justice is being used, well not justice, the Department of Justice is being used. It is not. justice that is being sought. There is a difference, in, uh, as any of you understand, of course, between using officials in the justice world and seeking justice. They may have nothing in common, and indeed, in this case, they do not, and in most cases, they do not. With regard to January 6th, they do not. That's why, what was it, how many hours of video were hidden from the American people and from the defendants, I might add? Was it 40,000 hours? Why were they hidden? Because the left has never been interested in justice or truth or, in fact, anything good. It is interested in destroying that which preceded them and then taking power. These are bad people. Alvin Bragg is a bad human being. George Soros is a bad human being. There are many bad human beings. There are some good human beings. And there are the rest of humanity. So it is a battle between the many bad and the few good. Because to be good, you have to be courageous. And courage is rarer than evil. Always, there is no exception in history, the forces of evil outnumbered the forces of good. 
Then arises a time when more people join the forces of good, as happened in World War II against the Nazis. And for that matter, the Japanese fascists. But in America today, it is a few good people, a lot of bad people, and the rest of the American people.